to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Mother of us all. Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. After other followers have turned away, after Jesus' long discourse about being the bread of life, Jesus asks the twelve wistfully, do you also wish to go away? And he receives these poignant, tender words from Peter, Lord, to whom can we go? Lord, to whom can we go? This is a glorious and hope-filled promise from Peter, a promise that stirs our hearts after four weeks of confusing statements about bread from Jesus. After four weeks during which we looked at being able to ask the right questions and being able to hear and live into the answers to those questions. And last week, a meditation on what it means to hear Jesus make disorienting claims that he is the bread of life, that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. For four weeks, with a blessed break for the Feast of St. Mary the Virgin, we have dwelled in one chapter in the Gospel of John. Chapter 6 trying to make sense of it all and it is with relief that I and I imagine many of you hear Peter's words of fidelity Lord to whom can we go you have the words of eternal life But I fear that those who designed the lectionary, the cycle of readings for each Sunday, I fear that they have provided a reward to the preacher and to all listeners for merely surviving those four weeks. But this reward is, well, premature. For you see, the reading from John continues. There are two more verses in the chapter 6 from John. After Peter's pledge of love and fidelity, the passage continues, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He was speaking of Judas. For he, though one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And of course, we know that the very one pledging his allegiance to Jesus today, Peter, we know that he will deny Jesus three times. In the midst of hope and faith, doubt, failure, sin. In the midst of promise, the reality that we cannot keep the promises we make. That betrayal comes despite our best intentions. What are we to make then of these noble promises? We hear them in Joshua. We hear them now in John. How are we 
we who also want to serve the Lord, to put our faith and trust in God, how are we to make sense of all those times that we fall short, fall away, doubt, sin? Years ago, when I was a very young graduate student in, Eng in the English department at IU, a friend who was an evangelical Christian was talking to me about C.S. Lewis. At that point in my life, my understanding of C.S. Lewis was mainly as the author of the Narnia books, especially The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. I realize now that my friend was trying to help me understand the truth of Christianity, but as far as I was concerned, we were just talking about books. David mentioned Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy, which I hadn't read, but was certain I knew all about. After all, if there's one thing graduate students think they know how to do, it's how to talk authoritatively about books we've never read. So I plunged in saying, yes, of course. It was so wonderful that Lewis had taken his title from William Wordsworth's poem, Surprised by Joy, one of my favorites, and to write about falling in love late in life with Joy Davidman. After all, I had seen the movie Shadowlands that had come out that year about Lewis's marriage, so I knew all about that. David raised his eyebrow. It isn't about that at all he said. Surprised by joy is about Lewis becoming a Christian, about looking back over his life and recognizing that all the moments of joy he had experienced had been pointing him towards God. It's the story of conversion. Oh, well, at least I'd gotten the title right. It is from Wordsworth. Over the years, as I too became a Christian, I read a great deal of Lewis, starting with Mere Christianity, one of the great Christian apologetics of the 20th century, one that is credited by many people for their conversion to the faith. Lewis helps one understand the basics of theology and orthodoxy, how we can believe the creeds no matter how smart we think we are. He writes about why we might want to follow God. It was much later, however, after taking in all that Lewis had to write about why and how to serve the Lord that I read A Grief Observed, which was written after the death of his beloved Joy, only four years after they married. In this book, Lewis despairs, he questions, he rages against God, he confesses his inability to pray, and the failure of prayer to comfort him. He comes perilously close to losing his faith. And perhaps it's no surprise that this lion of Christian apologetics chose at first to publish the book under a different name. And in fact, when he was revealed as the author, there were many raised eyebrows. Some found his grief and his doubt disturbing. How could such a well-known Christian writer skate so close 
to despair? Was he shirking his duties as a public Christian who had brought so many to faith? In the last chapter of his book, though, Lewis finds some kind of consolation. He reorients himself towards God, turns again, perhaps no less despairing or questioning or grieving, but he returns so his trust in God holds him up as he quotes the very famous words of St. Julian of Norwich, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. In the midst of despair and doubt, trust. In a time when we are deluged by doubt, when we know that so many public Christians, priests and bishops and other ministers have failed to be obedient to the Jesus that they promised to follow. When we struggle day to day in much smaller ways, I hope, but when we struggle to believe and to pray, when we struggle to forgive and to follow, what are we to think? If you have once said, like Peter, to whom else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. I have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. If you have said, as for me, I will serve the Lord, but now you're struggling. Or maybe in the future, when you struggle. Please know that your promise is not null and void. For to promise to follow God, to orient our lives towards God so that he is our north star, the guidepost who helps us find our way, well, that does not mean that we will never doubt. We will never struggle. We will never despair. It does not mean that we will never betray him. What it does mean is that we will abide in him. Because in the Gospel of John, to believe does not believing in complicated theorems or theologies. It doesn't mean to assent to intellectual proofs. Belief in the Gospel of John means to trust, to rely on, have a relationship with. That's why we make beautiful, lofty promises in baptism, to turn to Jesus and accept him as our savior, to put our whole trust in his grace and love, to follow and obey him. It's also why each time we renew our baptismal vows, as we will in just a few minutes, we are asked this question. Will you persevere in resisting evil and whenever, not if, when, whenever you fall into sin, will you repent 
and turn to the Lord. It's why we answer that and all the other questions, I will, with God's help. For when we pledge to serve the Lord, when you proclaim that Jesus has the words of life, you aren't saying that you'll never doubt or sin. You aren't saying that your beliefs and your relationship with God won't develop and change over time. What you're saying, what I'm saying, is that now our lives are oriented to God that our true north is Jesus Christ. And when we get lost, we can find our way home by following his light. It means when all seems forsaken, a mess, a disaster, and you are railing against God, that there will be a true voice whispering to you that the one who is always faithful to you That is the one to whom you must return for. To whom else can we go? For he has the words of eternal life. And with him, all shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.